You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Episode 326 of the Bowery Boys. At home with native New Yorkers. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Tom, it is good to hear your voice. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Um, listener, if you haven't heard our last show yet, Greg's uh, story about the Staten Island quarantine war, you probably missed my big surprise announcement uh, that my husband and I adopted a baby girl just two weeks ago. Congratulations to new Bowery gal, the, <laughs> a new addition to the Bowery family here. So congrats. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and you will be taking a little time off again soon, but you're here this week and next week for our two special listener challenge shows. Yes, I could not miss these two shows. Sleep deprivation be damned. I have been excited about these shows since we announced them last month. Uh, we asked our listeners to tell us about feeling at home in New York. What makes New York feel like home to you? And when did you first realize that you were actually, quote, at home in New York? We thought this was an appropriate question to ask as we're all spending much more time at home mm -hmm. during this period of social distancing. So... So we put this challenge to you, our listeners, to tell us about how you feel at home here in New York. And this is for everyone, by the way. It applies to native New Yorkers, transplants who moved to New York, and even visitors. Right, because obviously visitors to New York can also feel at home here. And in fact, we heard from some who feel more at home in New York than they do back where they live. <laughs> And we'll get to those stories in just a moment. Mm -hmm. And Tom, I want to hear your story of feeling at home in New York as well. But I wanted to start the show actually on a kind of literary note, shall uh, I? Okay. With a, with a little E.B. White. Uh -huh. The famed 20th century American author. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that you're not going to be reading from Charlotte's Web. I, as much as I would like to, uh, no, nor will I be reading from Stuart Little. Oh, although that does have a New York connection. The Littles lived in New York. No, I want to read from his 1948 essay called Here is New York, a love letter to the city that is like a time capsule of life in the city just after World War II. I think it's a nice introduction to describe what it is we're trying to do in these two shows. There are roughly three New Yorks. There is first 
the New York of the man or woman who was born here, who takes the city for granted and accepts its size and its turbulence as natural and inevitable. Second, there is the New York of the commuter, the city that is devoured by locusts each day and spat out each night. Third, there is the New York of the person who was born somewhere else and came to New York in quest of something. Of these three trembling cities, the greatest is the last, the city of final destination, the city that is a goal. It is this third city that accounts for New York's high-strung disposition, its poetical deportment, its dedication to the arts, and its incomparable achievements. Commuters give the city its title restlessness. Natives give it solidity and continuity. But the settlers give it passion. And whether it is a farmer arriving from Italy to set up a small grocery store in a slum, or a young girl arriving from a small town in Mississippi to escape the indignity of being observed by her neighbors, or a boy arriving from the Corn Belt with a manuscript in his suitcase and pain in his heart. It makes no difference. Each embraces New York with the intense excitement of first love. Each absorbs New York with the fresh eyes of an adventurer. Each generates heat and light to dwarf the Consolidated Edison Company. And Greg, I have to ask, are you, um, are you the boy arriving from the Corn Belt with a manuscript in his suitcase? And the pain in his heart. Yes. <laughs> yes, Tom. That is, that is I. <laughs> and that was an excerpt from E.B. White's essay, Here is New York. I just, I love it. I love those three New Yorks, the native New Yorkers, the commuters, and the settlers. Of course, he's also leaving out another big segment of New York, uh, the tourists. Mm. Of them, he actually writes, quote, To an outlander, a stay in New York can be and often is a series of small embarrassments and discomforts and disappointments. <laughs> not understanding the waiter, not being able to distinguish between the sucker joint and the friendly saloon, riding the wrong subway, being slapped down by a bus driver for asking an innocent question, enduring sleepless nights when the street noises fill the bedroom. Poor guy, it sounds like he had a rough visit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that outlander. <laughs> um, okay, so White gives us then four categories, the native, the commuter, the settler, and the tourist. And those are roughly the four groups that we'll be hearing from over the course of these two shows. We asked you a rather open-ended question, very open-ended. How does New York feel like home? When did it feel like home? And you didn't disappoint. So today we'll be focusing mostly on native New Yorkers and tourists. And I have to say that some of you gave us... I, I can only call it poetry. Here is Rachel, um, a native New Yorker who painted a beautifully vivid portrait of a childhood memory growing up in the city in the early 1990s. Hello, my name is Rachel and I'm calling from New York City. It is 1993 and I am five years old. I stand on the roof of the village nursing home on Abingdon Square with my 90-year-old great-aunt Francie, who, like me, is a cosmos of Manhattan the daughter, gazing over the rooftops and water towers of Greenwich Village 
pigeons from an unseen nearby coop circling overhead. This is the neighborhood of her childhood, a short trip from the neighborhood of mine. This memory is cut together with fleeting frames from films, TV shows, theater, and books set in New York City, as well as other instances in my own life and that of my families around the city, creating a composite memory, a montage that is both remembrance and fiction, the public dreams of New York City merging with my own private myths. To grow up here is to live your life on the stage sets of history, to feel the pulsing currents of the street in your blood. The pigeons circle overhead. And I am home. Um, it is so true. We we do live in a composite history, I would say. Mm-hmm. There's so many things. There's so many works of art, culture, that are set in New York. And it's those things that make people from around the world feel really familiar with New York in a way that a lot of cities don't have. Yeah, and that is a theme that we heard from others as well. That familiarity you know, of the city's iconic buildings and parks and streets and stores that actually makes people feel more at home. Now, Tom, I like that you started with that listener voicemail from uh, 1993, Mm -hmm. uh, because that is uh, the year that actually you and I both moved here. That's true. I I feel like I knew the city in some ways by the time I moved here. Now, I should say, by the way, that I moved here in 1993, but I had first lived in New York in 1992 during the summer as an intern for a Midtown magazine. So glamorous, by the way. (laughs) And, you know, I was this hayseed from the Ozarks. Here I was in big, glamorous uh, New York, and I was living in the East Village, and I had this wonderful job. It was just a, a beautiful experience. But I should add that while I was in the city, they had already started filming the very first season of The Real World, New York, on MTV. Remember that? Yeah. And so by the the time my internship left, the show was still on. So I had this experience of... Like coming to New York, the city that would be visualized on this television, a city that I had never seen before, going back to Missouri. And here I was turning on the television and watching the show and being like, I want to live a life that these people are doing because I just did that for a couple months. And I had a unique relationship with the first season of that show, which of course went downhill after a while. (laughs) But that is my particular pop culture connection with New York. Of course, there's millions that I could rattle off. So did the real world make you feel in some ways at home in New York that first season? Well, yeah, when I came back to watch it, it absolutely did. It made me feel like, oh, I can, it's so crazy. I actually remember these types of things. I remember seeing these types of people. I remember the excitement and diversity of the streets of New York when I watched that in a way that I just wasn't getting that, you know, back where I lived in Missouri. And I think that, you know, going back to 1993, as a senior in high school back in Ohio, I was actually, before moving here for college, binging on classic films that were set in New York. And one in particular was all about Eve. Oh, fasten your seatbelts, Tom. <laughs> uh, did it did it actually make you feel more at home, like watching these glamorous movies like this by the time you actually moved here for college? Um, kind of. I mean, I was a little more familiar um, with the theaters, at least, of New York. Mm-hmm. Though it also made me feel a little bit disappointed because I had expected everybody to talk like Margot Channing and Addison DeWitt. 
Wait, they don't? I mean, who are you talking to? (laughs) Some people do after a couple martinis. Okay, yes. But no, most people don't. Well, because of this mainstream exposure, people feel comfortable in New York, people from around the world. We received an email from Anne Kay from Denmark about this very thing. She wrote, I have never lived in New York, but I wanted to visit for many years. When I finally had the opportunity to go on a tour around the States, I stayed in New York for two weeks. I got to feel at home quite quick. I got a routine of taking the subway downtown every morning from the 103rd Street Station. I cannot really explain what it is about New York. Maybe it's because you have seen the city in so many movies, but you feel right at home. And we also heard from visitors to the city who felt at home and empowered, actually, when they visited because of some of the city's icons. In the case of Hillary from Colorado, she found a sort of power by visiting Patience and Fortitude, the Great Lions, sitting outside the New York Public Library. Hello, my name is Hillary. I am from beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado. I've only been to New York for a total of three days. But as I walked between the lions at the New York Public Library, I felt sort of powerful and like I could take on the world. And I think that is what New York means to so many people who live there and who don't. And certainly it's the moment that I felt like I belonged there, even if I only belonged there for three days. So that's my little story. Thank you. I'm not going to lie. Those are some charismatic cats, (laughs) patience and fortitude. Yes. And socially distancing, I should add. Oh, very, very distant, actually, (laughs) especially from us right now. Um, and, And really that says something about the city itself, that it can feel so welcoming so immediately for some people. But I think it also taps into something that we've all felt at some point, you know, especially early on in our experience here in New York. Do you, do you remember wondering if you belonged here? Even wondering if other people thought that you belonged here mm-hmm. and that if wondering if you, you were passing as a New Yorker? <laughs> that, that's a feeling that even children visiting the city can experience. Hello, this is Bryce from Vancouver, Washington. Love visiting New York. My favorite New York story is in the early 2000s when I'm there with my son, Ben, who was eight at the time. He loved New York from the time he was a baby. And we were walking back to the hotel from Central Park. He had on a New York Rangers baseball cap, and he was walking with a real swagger. And after a few minutes, he looked up at me and said, Dad, do you think when people see us, they think we're New Yorkers? It was just really important for him to feel like he was a real New Yorker. And it's just that wonderful thing of the city. You feel smarter when you're there. You feel more sophisticated. And I love the place and love getting back to it. And Ben will be back there in the fall. Thank you. <laughs> and we will welcome you back in yes. the fall, Bruce. I love that all of these examples so far are from people who have never actually lived in the city, but still feel at home in some respect. Mm-hmm. And we got actually 
so many more examples of this. It's really wonderful. Yeah. Michael Kay from Davis, California, who has never lived in New York, wrote to us about his love affair with the city that started back in the 1950s with visits um, and a one-week adventure on the Lower East Side in his teens in the 1960s. That must have been fun. Uh, but, <laughs> but he didn't become what he called a, quote, New Yorkophile until 1975 when he read David McCullough's book, The Great Bridge. That book changed his relationship with the city. It made him feel more at home here, and it led him to walk across the bridge at least once on every subsequent trip to the city. Now, the Great Bridge, of course, is on the Hall of Fame Barry Boys bookshelf. <laughs> totally. It's an amazing, it's a classic. And sometimes it does take a great book or a work of art of some kind to bring people spiritually closer to the city. We got an email from Jamie, who for the last 15 years has been working at a summer camp in Connecticut. And he's ended up spending a lot of time in New York with the staff who live in the city. And he's fallen in love with the city. He writes, It may seem weird, but the homiest part of New York City to me is Grand Central. I would always come into the city through Grand Central, and arriving always made me feel calm and relaxed, despite the chaos everywhere, knowing I was somewhere that felt like home. Leaving via Grand Central was also comforting as I was leaving with new memories. Each year, the last trip I made to New York at the end of the summer, I walk around the Grand Central area listening to Tony Bennett, and I always touch the same pillar outside the main entrance doors. I don't know how that started, but it's just something that's part of the experience. I totally get it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's those rituals that we develop that form that attachment to the city. Mm-hmm. For years, I mean, for more than a decade, I listened to the same song while driving across the George Washington Bridge um, at the end of a long drive to New York from Ohio. Okay, well, I'm afraid to ask here <laughs> which song filled you with such joy. Um, <laughs> it was NYC from the Annie cast album. <laughs> so it wasn't Tony Bennett or it wasn't even like Billy Joel. N no, it was Andrew McArdle, actually. Listen, <laughs> yes. don't judge, okay? <laughs> okay, but to go back to E.B. White's grouping here, these are all people, everyone that we've heard from thus far, mm -hmm. people who have never lived in New York but still feel at home here. Yeah, White called them outlanders, I believed. Uh, mm -hmm. He also mentioned commuters rather derisively, I might add. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, regardless of what he said in his what he wrote in his essay in 1948, I think we can agree that commuters can also develop a very close and personal relationship with the city. Kim from Westfield, New Jersey, 45 minutes away, is now in her 60s and sent us an overview of how the city has meant different things to her at different stages in her life. From her childhood visits uh, to automats and the Natural History Museum, to class trips and Broadway shows during school, to overnights as a young married couple with her husband, 
then trips in with her young son to the Met in Central Park while getting a master's at Columbia and then work at the UN in her 40s and day trips in in her 50s and now in her 60s. She writes, I will never live there, but Manhattan is the place that is surely my second home. When I step off the train or out of the car, I feel such joy and a sense of place. I do like this idea that your relationship with the city grows and changes as you grow and change throughout your whole life. Mm -hmm. I definitely can relate to that. Yeah, it certainly has changed for us. I mean, we obviously do not interact with the city today like we did in our 20s. Thankfully, or else we'd be broke. <laughs> or in jail. <laughs> or, or that also, yes. <laughs> but there's but another one of these main groups here, of course, are native New Yorkers. They were actually E.B. White's first category. And they probably have a slightly different take on finding home here. Yeah, because for one thing, they're not leaving another home to find it here. So... We'll hear from some native New Yorkers on finding home in New York after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. So we've heard from several visitors and even commuters about how New York feels like home. So now let's hear from the native New Yorkers. Their perspective is, of course, sure to be very different. Right, because their whole home experience is here, sometimes going back generations. Take, for example, Hannah, whose family has been here for more than a century and who says that New York runs in her veins. 
Hey, Tom and Greg. Um, my name is Hannah. I am currently in Manhattan in New York City, and I just wanted to talk about how I kind of refer to New York as running in my veins. We have only ever lived in New York since coming to America in the 1890s, early 1900s. I come from a big Italian family on my dad's side and a big Jewish family on my mom's side. And tonight we had our Easter celebration, our East, Eastover as we like to call it. And I currently live in my aunt's old apartment while she takes care of my 101-year-old grandma, who was in fact born during the last horrible pandemic. Um, and it was pretty special because we got my grandmother, who's lived over a century, on this Zoom podcast while I sat under a big family portrait where she is a baby taken in 1919. And it was really special. And New York has always been my home and always will be my home. Thank you so much, you guys. That is such a cool story. And so now it, it brings today's show into the Zoom age. <laughs> But to take us back out into the world before social distancing, mm -hmm. some native New Yorkers actually see their own family history, their ancestors in the streets and the buildings that they walk and drive by every day. Which makes total sense. And I think that we do the same thing. I mean, I see my friends, you know, our friends in, in buildings that I walk past, I see Nancy's old place in Chelsea or mm -hmm. Nick in his first apartment on Broom Street or your old place at Park Ave South and 23rd. Oh, Tom, I just I walked by that building. And the first thing that comes into my head is remembering that I paid three hundred dollars in rent when I first moved in there in 1993. Yeah. Three hundred dollars would today be your cable bill in that building. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, anyway, imagine that feeling of seeing the past, you know, on today's streetscape, but seeing previous generations of your family instead. That could really make you feel at home here, which is the case with Angela from Queens. Hi, this is Angela from Queens, New York. I was trying to think of a story that really represented how New York was home, but felt that home is really a collection of stories and that the ghosts of memories or stories I've heard from my family kind of layer themselves on physical places like buildings and streets. So, for example, there's this four-way stop near where I live, and it's pretty dangerous. Um, it could be hard to see where cars are coming from. And whenever I pass it, I go really slowly, and one day my dad was driving with me, and he said about 30 years ago he was actually in an accident at that cross street. And immediately afterwards... Stop signs had been put up where they weren't before. So I guess what I'm saying is the idea of someone creating and shaping an environment that eventually created you is really meaningful for what makes home home. Wow. Family history at just an ordinary intersection. Yes, a, a multi-generational intersection, Greg. By the way, we should note that some native New Yorkers obviously marry non-native New Yorkers. You know, they're allowed to. On occasion. Uh, yeah. And sometimes those non-natives can feel even more at home here than the natives, which was the case with Bonnie, who married a man from Milwaukee. Hi, my name is Bonnie. I'm a native New Yorker. 
My husband came from Milwaukee and transferred to become more of a New Yorker than I did. At one time, we were planning a vacation. We had absolutely no money, totally broke, and our kids wanted to get out of town, and so did we, and I recommended a camping trip, although I, of course, as a New York native, had never been on one. Neil looked at me, and he said, Bonnie, when you leave Manhattan, you are camping. He really loved the city. So do I. Thank you, Bowery Boys. I love you guys. Bye-bye. <laughs> now, see... Anyone can become a New Yorker, even a guy from Milwaukee mm-hmm. or Mexico or Japan or, in our case, Missouri or Ohio. That's right. Uh, speaking of love and marriage, we did get a few phone calls about romance and how that affects people's relationship with the city. Yes, in good times and in bad. And mostly for our show today, in bad times. Oh, no. <laughs> Next, we'll hear from Milana from Tuckahoe in Westchester County. She talked about how difficult it can be to date men in New York when you live in the suburbs. In her case, just about 25 miles north of the city. Hi, I'm Milana, and I live in Tuckahoe, New York in Westchester. A big thing in online dating in New York City is that men require you to live in their neighborhood and are right by their subway line. So this is an issue since... Except for a few stints living there, I usually reside in the suburbs, but in a, I'm in the city all the time when not in quarantine. I'm seeing friends, theater art, taking classes, or long walks, not on the beach. But these guys often view me as an upstater, and they often say part of the breakup is location, location, location. I've even known people who wouldn't date someone because Central Park was the great divide between East and West, and I'm like, y'all sound like some small-town folk who won't leave your tiny two-mile radius. Now, a lot of those past men ended up moving out of New York to, like, middle of nowhere Florida. And some are still here, but complaining that they want to run off to a mountain or a tropical island. So often on city nights, when I'm walking to my car getting ready to bridge and tunnel it, I think these city guys will literally come and go, but I'll always have my island where I'll never desire to sleep too far away from. Oh, well, so... She does feel at home in the city, even Mm -hmm. from her car. Yeah. And Robert Moses would love that. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Adam, who grew up in the East Village, found that romance and real estate often don't mix. But when things go bad, the city can step in and help out. Hey, what's up, fellas? Uh, This is Adam. Grew up uh, 10th Street and Avenue D, Alphabet City. Uh, one of my crazy stories, I got tons of crazy stories, but one that really hits and, and makes me connect to home is uh, I used to live back in 2008, 2009, I had an apartment up in uh, Spanish Harlem, was dating a girl who was from out of town. Long story short, she was like, oh, I'm moving to town, let's get a place. I gave up my apartment. We wound up getting a place over in uh, Astoria, Queens. Uh, it was great at first. It fell apart. Everything fell apart. And so I was like, all right, well, who's going to keep the apartment? Well, uh, I made the mistake of not putting my name on the lease. I paid her in cash as opposed to checks. So it was time for me to go. And she wanted me out right away. It was a long thing. So anyway, I got some buddies together. We got a U-Haul. We went over to the building. We started picking up things. All of a sudden, I hear a car screech across the street. Guy gets up. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? I was like, I don't even know who you are. What's going on? And he's like, hey, you live in this building? This is my building. You know, who's moving out? Who's trying to jump out on me? I was like, oh. And I told him the story. And he was like, oh, oh, 
where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to my buddy's couch after I dump all my stuff in storage. And he's like, no, 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 no. He said, well, if you want something, come with me. I got another apartment a few blocks away. So we drive up, only three, four blocks from there, and uh, we go inside. And sure enough, they were still painting the place. And he was like, if you want, you can move in now. You know, we, we can sign the paperwork. You got a job? I said, yeah, yeah, I got a job. All right, good, good. Good credit, decent credit. I was like, yeah, all right, all right. So he's like, listen, uh, this is great turnaround time. We can get this worked out. So first month in the deposit, and that's it. So I said, all right, cool, let's do it. So I went to the bank, came back. By the time I came back, paperwork was there. We signed it. My buddies and I, we moved everything in. That's that's a New York story right there. All right, guys, talk to you later. Bye. So he literally found his home in New York while getting tossed out of another home. You know, I think you could say it's a story with a super ending. <laughs> um, but it's it's not all bad romances, fortunately. Good dates can stay with you for decades and even make you feel at home in the city. A much happier romance played out for Stephen from Staten Island. I'm Stephen from Staten Island. One of my early dates with my wife was taking her to a small movie theater on the Upper East Side where I took her to see an old Hitchcock movie. And then we sat in a small diner facing 2nd Avenue um, and just enjoyed the traffic. It was a nice date. Many years later now, once in a while, I get up real early, hop on a 6 o'clock Staten Island ferry, take the subway up to the Upper East Side, go to that same diner. The streets are usually really quiet. And I sit down. I order my favorite breakfast, also facing the street. The diner doesn't have many people in it. I look down and I say, I'm home. Tom, I have one of those diners yeah. in my head, but also in real life. <laughs> Would you travel from Staten Island all the way to the Upper East Side for your diner? They have the best diners in the Upper East Side, so the answer is a resounding yes. <laughs> Although there's actually some good diners on Staten Island, so, you know, don't want to take away from those. But of course, there are also native New Yorkers who moved away. Yeah, contrary to our whole show here, some native New Yorkers move away and they find a sense of home somewhere else, like Tim, who now lives in Olympia, Washington. Hi, my name is Tim. And I grew up in New York. I went to high school at Xavier, 30 West 16th Street. And I went to college at Manhattan up on 242nd. I left New York to live here in Olympia. And I've been out here for the last almost 40 years. But my daughter who just graduated from NYU a couple of years ago, is living in Brooklyn. I love New York. I always love getting back there to visit, but I'd have to say that my home now is here in Olympia. Thank you. Hey, at least he still loves New York, right? <laughs> yes. But we received more messages from native New Yorkers who moved away and were wistful or who could still taste the New York of their earlier years. For example, here's Richard, who now lives in Washington, D.C. Hi, Greg and Tom. This is Richard, a third-generation New Yorker now living in uh, Washington, D.C. I feel at home in New York in two ways. One is the energy that drives the city. 
that I think is powered by its tolerance of the diversity of backgrounds and perspectives that makes it unique anywhere in the world. Uh, you really can't replicate it. The second is, for me, the food. Uh, I lived in Carroll Gardens, a known uh, Italian hub. Uh, Caputo's is our local deli. To me, it is still the best tortellini around. But I'm also half Jewish, so I walk into Russ and Daughters as they bars. Um, and since I grew up on a steady diet of lox and herring and bagels, uh, that smell and those tastes just bring me right back to uh, when we lived there and still carry with me to this day. Uh, thanks very much. Bye. Mm, I love all those places, like food and memory. Nothing makes memory more, more profound than just food. <laughs> I mean, Caputo's tortellini is delicious, by the way. We love all of those places that mm-hmm. he mentioned there. But sticking to the neighborhood of Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. we also heard from Susan, who now lives in Southport, Colorado, but lived for a time in Carroll Gardens and then for uh, many years in Brooklyn Heights. So she thinks of it and cries every time she watches the movie Moonstruck. I mean, it's one of our favorites, um, which we just covered for the for the movie club. But... Susan also points out that living in the city in the 1970s was challenging. You know, home could still feel dangerous. But she'll never forget the feeling she had when she moved out of the city. Hey, Tom and Greg. My name's Susan. I actually live in Southport, Connecticut. I lived in New York for 12 years. Most of them spent in Brooklyn Heights and a short time in Carroll Gardens and originally on the Upper West Side. And I definitely will always think of New York as home. My favorite movie is Moonstruck. And uh, I lived at 141 Columbia Heights for most of my time in Brooklyn Heights. And just absolutely almost cry every time I see that movie. Uh, We moved to New York in August of 1977, the week after they caught Son of Sam. And... I liked it at first, but it was a tough time to be in New York, and I recall going into my apartment, a sublet on Riverside Drive for $350 a month, and basically hyperventilating every day once the door was closed because it was (laughs) a little stressful. But after a year, somehow I morphed into a New Yorker, and uh, never ever is there any place where I feel more at home, more among my peeps. I recall the day that we moved out of the city. We had uh, two little babies and were renting a place in Brooklyn Heights um, with no washer or dryer in the building and looking at education and figuring we better move back to my original state of Connecticut. Uh, And I recall driving past the park on Columbia Heights, uh, the one that's uh, on the eastern side toward the bridge. And uh, I said to myself, my life will never be the same as this again. And I am going to really miss it. I still remember that. That was uh, over 32 years ago. And I just wanted to say what a great show you guys have. And it makes me feel like I'm back at home in New York. Thanks. Bye. Oh, thank you, Susan. Um, that's really sweet and really poignant. Three decades later, and she still remembers that feeling, that, that last look when leaving this place that she called 
home. Now, on today's show, we focused on native New Yorkers and visitors to New York, including commuters. Mm -hmm. We received many more phone calls and letters from that other category, the transplants. And we cannot wait to share their stories. Including more of our stories. Right, of finding home in New York. And we will be sharing those in our next show. A huge thank you to everyone who called in with their stories, including those whose stories we included on today's show, and those whose stories weren't able to be included because of time constraints. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, to read more about today's show and to read thousands of other stories about New York City history. You can join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And a huge thank you to those who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. It is because of your support, patrons, especially during this very tricky time, that Greg and I are able to dedicate all of our time to producing the Bowery Boys. We would not have a show without your generous support. And for those who join us on Patreon, you'll have special access to patron-only shows, including the Bowery Boys Movie Club and The Takeout, the show that goes behind the scenes here at the Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. So part two of this special Listener's Challenge series focusing on the transplants will be arriving in your feeds this Tuesday. So be sure to watch for it. Make sure you're subscribed, actually, so that you get the show automatically. So thanks for spending time with us today at home with both native New Yorkers and visitors to the Big Apple. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.